What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. I have interviewed hundreds of founders on this podcast and many hundreds more on IndieHackers.com. And I think it's clear that the idea you choose to work on matters. In fact, the big decisions that you make in the early days might be the most important factor and whether or not you can actually build a profitable side project and turn it into a business that supports your vision for your life. So today I'm bringing on two previous podcast guests to have a discussion about how to make some of these big decisions. Specifically, how do you choose what to work on? Justin Jackson is the founder of Transistor, a podcast hosting service that's recently taken off in a big way. He first came onto the show back in September to share Transistor's story. Justin, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks. Good to be here. Good I had to, to miss you. a good skiing day for today, so... I know, I feel so it's bad. It's better be worth it. <laughs> it's up to you, and I guess up to me too. Tyler Tringas is the founder of Earnest Capital, where he provides early stage funding for bootstrappers and indie hackers who are trying to build profitable, sustainable tech businesses. Tyler, this is your third time on the podcast, so welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Does that make me the, the record holder? I think you might be the record holder. I think we've had someone else who's been on here twice. So yeah, you're, you're officially in the lead, if we're keeping track of this sort of thing. That's the crown I'm after. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason I wanted to bring both of you onto the show is primarily because of a blog post that you wrote, Justin. It's called The Main Thing. What would you say is the point you're trying to get across in that blog post, Justin? And also what motivated you to write it? Oh, that post there is me kind of following my curiosity. It was just me pulling on a thread and going, oh, that's kind of interesting. I was talking to Nathan Bashez, and yeah, I was just thinking, kind of pulling on this thread of, it's interesting how sometimes, you know, in certain categories, the main thing kind of swallows up most of the value in that value chain or in that category. And then I thought of this metaphor of eating out. And, you know, when I was in college and didn't have very much money, if I ate out, I would like order an entree and water. And, you know, just thinking about how, yeah, that's interesting. Most folks often will just order the entree and, you know, maybe 10% of the time they'll order dessert. And I was wondering, well, maybe there's a, you know, maybe this is applicable to the way we think about products. So it's just kind of an exploration of, you know, this kind of uh, intellectual rabbit hole of, hmm, maybe this is a good way to frame some of the way we think about building products. And there are definitely some scenarios where this kind of it seems true, right? And I think, yeah, I have a few examples in the post, but I use my friend uh, Josh as an example. He has this kind of subscription form business, and he found it difficult to kind of be an appetizer in that market. So what does it mean to build a company where you're an appetizer? Like, what's your example of your friend's um, Josh's company? Yeah, so in that specific case, it was he had he was doing subscription forms that you could embed in medium posts. And his initial advantage was that he was an appetizer for a main thing that was taking off medium. Medium was like crazy. Uh, there was tons of folks like me that were building big audiences on medium. And 
the invariably, eventually you're like, man, I'm getting all this traffic at Medium, but it's not helping me any. And that's how I found him as I was, I Googled, you know, subscription forms for Medium. But eventually what he found was that that wasn't enough. It's not enough to be an appetizer, especially when, in his case, the main thing, Medium, started to not be as popular for bloggers like me. And then he was kind of trying to move over and say, well, maybe I can be just like nice subscription forms for regular blogs. And it was just always too much of an appetizer. It wasn't enough that, you know, maybe 10% of the time people would want to order it. But most of the time, people just didn't want that. And in that category, email newsletters, the main thing is I want to be able to create and send newsletters. And a nice form that I can embed on my site is just a nice to have. It's just a, uh, you know, it's an appetizer. It's something I might order once in a while, but I don't really need it all the time. So one of the cool things about business is is that it's complex enough for there to be a lot of different viewpoints on topics like this. I've seen talks where founders basically agreed with you and said, don't build on top of other platforms. Don't build a side dish. You should build the main thing that provides value for customers that they're used to paying for. I've seen talks where founders say the exact opposite. I was just watching Jason Cohen give a talk at MicroConf where he was saying, one of the best things you can do is build in an aftermarket where you're building you know, on an app store, you know, following in the footsteps of a bigger business where their momentum is sort of pulling you along with them. Mm -hmm. And Tyler, when you read Justin's post, I think you had uh, some points you raised on Twitter where you basically disagreed with some of the things Justin was saying as to how you can maximize your chances of building a meaningful business as a bootstrapper. So what's your take on whether or not a new founder should build a main thing or a side dish or an appetizer? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, I mean, I think it's it's a great post. And I think that, uh, Justin, I think you've been on a roll lately with a bunch of, of insightful posts that have done a really good job of giving a sort of nice, concise, intellectual wrapper around important things to think about. So I just want to say that, like, the reason why I think, you know, the reason why I'm having this conversation, I think, is that, you know, Justin has basically been putting out this series of great posts. And then essentially, I've been just like a lazy reply guy, just kind of jumping in there and and saying, well, you know, let me just nitpick on this, this and this. But I think at a high level, there's sort of like two points to most of these posts. One is like, hey, this is an interesting and important thing to think about. And then there's a layer that goes into like, but now what should you do with with when you think about that? And I think on all of these, I feel like I wholeheartedly agree with Justin that these are a really good way to frame a thing that it's important for people to think about. And then where we've kind of come into areas of disagreement has been, what are the implications for doing business? And then usually I think, both of us and, and probably everyone here goes to the narrower view of, you know, okay, bootstrappers, right? Kind of indie hackers, you know, these folks, what, how should they be thinking about this particular category? And so, so that's where I think like we, we started to, to create areas of disagreement is I, I think it's a great framing. It's very useful to think about, okay, I want to build this product. Like, is it a main thing? Is it a dessert? Is it an appetizer? Is it foie gras? You know, totally luxury <laughs> product that no one's barely anyone's ever going to buy, but it's incredibly expensive. 
you know, that that's a great kind of metaphor to use and a lens through which to look through things. And then to a first order approximation, you might take that metaphor and say, well, obviously you should be building a main thing, right? Because, you know, everybody is going to buy the main thing. Everybody that goes to a restaurant pretty much gets an entree, right? Or, and water, you know, and then maybe they would add on some stuff to it. So, so that's going to be much easier to find customers. But I think where I look at that and, and sort of think about, okay, if I'm a, a bootstrapper now, uh, or an indie hacker or something like that, should I be thinking more towards building a main thing or should I be thinking about building things that are, you know, kind of side dishes or, or appetizers or basically bolt on products that can sort of leverage somebody else's effort in a main thing, right? Should I be building the, the complementary product to, to a very popular main thing? And I generally think that at least at this point in time now for bootstrappers or indie hackers or folks who are basically not coming with a ton of, you know, incumbent capital or unfair advantages, as I generally kind of use the, the aggregate term, should be actually shying away from main things in the, the main because a lot of these general big verticals are incredibly competitive right now. And when I look at indie hackers and if I just kind of scroll through all the products getting launched and things like that, where I see people basically that I think, oh, yeah, I'm, I hate to break it to you, but that's definitely going to fail. Are, are folks who have a new idea for a, a to-do app or a new twist on, you know, kind of WordPress hosting or something like that, these like obvious big main things. And what they're not kind of factoring in is how much competition is like a second order effect where just going to make it so much harder to get traction, to get distribution, to get differentiation, all those things get, you know, kind of, that make it really hard. So where I just see this like, really talented founders running 100 miles an hour into a brick wall is building another project management app, another, you know, really big, obvious main thing. So so that's, I think, where I'm, where I think we can have a discussion around sort of, should you build a main thing? I, I think it's a great lens to analyze things, but, you know, should you do it or not? Separate question for me. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, if you read the post, I explore both sides because they're both interesting. And one of the examples I use is one of my favorite places in Portland is this ice cream place called the Salt and Straw. And, you know, they regularly serve 36 flavors and they make it themselves. And it works because it's Portland, right? <laughs> like it, that place has a lineup out the door and, you know, they're selling dessert. But it wouldn't work. That concept wouldn't work in my hometown, for example, uh, because it's just too small of a market. We don't have, I think Portland has almost 30 million tourists a year. And, you know, here we're not even close to that. So here the places that work well are, you know, the meat and potatoes kind of places. If you if you sell meat and potatoes and uh, you do a good job, uh, you'll probably have, you'll probably have a lineup out your door. But a place that sells just ice cream handmade the way they do it at Salt and Straw, it likely won't work. And it's interesting looking at both sides. So in what situations and contexts does it make sense to go after a main thing? And sometimes, for example, those existing categories, the existing competitors there are old and crusty, right? There's opportunity because the incumbent players are just so old uh, that you can come in with a fresh new take on the category and you can do well, even though these are big, you know, giants and gorillas in the space. In other situations, there's a main platform like WordPress that's taking off. And it makes sense to, you know, build really good WordPress hosting. 
and you can kind of ride on the coattails of this bigger thing that's moving. And so for me, that's the that's kind of the the interesting part about this is looking at the variables on both sides here is, oh yeah, in what cases does this make sense? And in what cases does this not make sense? And what we don't want to do is we don't want to discount things too early. Like we don't want to say, don't ever go into a competitive space because, you know, there's too much competition. Well, but wait a second. I mean, like in podcasting, Libsyn has been around forever. But for a lot of people, they were super old and crusty. And so to have a fresh new take in that market made sense, right? Tyler, I'm curious what, in your opinion, is the biggest risk with trying to build a business that's the main thing? Is it the competition? Is it the fact that if you get started as an indie hacker building something that targets such a huge audience and that's really got a lot of incumbents who are dominating the space that you just won't be able to beat them? I think it's the second order effects of competition, right? So so to to get any amount of traction, I think you need differentiation and distribution, right? And you need you need some amount of either of those two things. And so it's just so much easier to if you basically you know, just to sort of put like cards on the table here, right? I mean, the the holistic view that I have here is that, you know, both in terms of where I think most of the opportunities are for for entrepreneurs to succeed in the sort of, you know, software technology enabled indie hacker kind of realm, leaving aside, maybe I'm not going to really pontificate too much on um, restaurants and, and ice cream chains outside of outside of metaphorically, but but, but in these realms, you know, I really think to be to maximize your chance of success, you need to niche down basically by either product or audience. So that's basically differentiation or distribution, right? Either you're going to target a niche audience somehow with a, let's say, a main thing for that audience, um, or you need to build a sort of differentiated product that is probably not going to be the main thing, but in a big market. And I think if you are just kind of going straight at the main thing, what you often, and again, like we can just kind of list them. What I think of the idea of what are the main things for indie hackers, right? It's it's a CRM, it's a project management tool, it's a to do list, it's an e, a, you know basic e commerce, it's you know static site hosting or or just general CMSs, those sorts of huge verticals. They're just chock full at this point in time. Like maybe they, like they weren't ten years ago. You know, it was a totally reasonable thing to be Squarespace and bootstrap Squarespace and go into that market. But now I really feel like we're in a time now where so many of those things that we would say, oh, go after a main thing to a, let's say a a young entrepreneur just kind of starting out looking for the best place to succeed as an indie hacker. They're just so hard to to differentiate organ distribution. You know, that used to be, we all know these stories of folks who started their business back when, you know, you could get five cents a click on AdWords, right? And, And that was how you got your thing out there. And you didn't need to be super differentiated. You didn't need this incredibly niche audience, but that's just not the case anymore with these main things. Now, sometimes you can find these niche audiences where, you know, they just, they don't have a main thing at all, you know, and so it's just wide open. Um, This is maybe a little bit of a separate conversation, but the other thing is you can find these niche use cases within the categories. And that's where I think, you know, if you look at, for example, the portfolio of companies we're investing in, as well as where I see a ton of the successful indie hackers, they're almost all in terms of lately, let's say, you know, things that have started in the last five years, these sorts of basically appetizers that you would call them, right? They are, they are you know, automated dunning and collections on top of Stripe. They are um, error collections and, and notifications on top of, you know, Rails and other hosting platforms. They are, you know, the, these little bolt-on pieces. And, and the magic is that 
you know, it's even when you are a side dish that, you know, maybe you can't build an ice cream shop in, in Vernon, DC, but when you are selling to the internet, right, you do still have this magical sort of ability to find these shockingly small niche products that you can't even believe. I mean, I saw, I think you were interacting on Twitter the other day. I saw somebody who, who does just snapshots for DigitalOcean. Looks like, I don't know the details there, but looks like it's a full-time business for someone for several years. That Just the most niche things you could think of can turn into real businesses. And it's so much easier to get both differentiation and distribution on the internet as an indie hacker. Yeah, that ultimately what I'm especially interested in right now is quantifying demand. So what is the economic potential for a product if I built it in this context? And this is why I often say the market you choose matters the most. So if you're in the PHP market, then, and of course you can get kind of pedantic or semantic about how we quanti- like how we define these things. But if you're in the PHP market, that is a massive, massive market. And Taylor Otwell has built, you know, a $10 million business in that market. And in a sense, he's a side thing. Because he's on top of this massive market. Like, I, I'm guessing that, you know, $125 billion a year is spent on PHP developers. But in another sense, he's built things that are very much the main thing in a development pipeline, like Forge. It's like something that you need to get your work done. Uh, also, I'll just take a quick sidebar and, and say, <laughs> I think uh, we got to be careful also about the examples we use, because the developer market especially... The technical market is one of the most unique markets in the world. And what works with the developer market, especially the, these special niches we find within the developer market, likely won't work outside of the developer market. It's just a very unique market. You can't take the lessons that Adam Wavin learned with refactoring UI and apply it to knitters. They're just developers right now are highly incentivized to get better at their job. They're making, you know, some of the most money in the economy right now. Uh, There's a lot of factors that make it a very unique market. And so we don't want to draw too many parallels outside of that category. Lost my train of thought, but... (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm actually interested to hear you say more about that. In what specific way do you think developers are different from from knitters? I I think you're right, but... I mean, first of all, the number of them, their average revenue, the fact that they are highly incentivized to get better at what they do. So professional development in that category is just unlike anything else. Like there's not really that many categories that are like that. There might be some parallels with like doctors, but nobody has these all of the check marks, right? Reachable online congregates in communities online, uh, has tons and tons of cheap channels to reach them with. You know, at what's Adam Wavin and Steve Shoger's marketing budget? It's, it's nothing. It's their time, right? They're using existing channels. And, you know, most businesses in the world now are software businesses. And so it makes sense, you know, if you go to your boss and say, well, can we buy a copy of Refactoring UI? You'll say, well, yeah, let's, let's do it. We, we, you know, we're a software business. It makes sense to invest in this. So when you have that many people in motion, when you have that many companies that are also incentivized to invest in tools and education and all these things, uh, it's just a very unique market. And we might see it change. If in 20 years 
artificial intelligence is writing most low-level PHP, maybe that market won't be won't have those characteristics anymore. It's probably likely, right? Markets change all the time. The dynamics within a market change all the time. I think that market especially, I see a lot of examples on indie hackers and podcasts and things that are in the development market. And then I see other people trying to apply those to, you know, real estate agents and lawyers and other things. And I think the reason it doesn't work is because the developer market and the technical market is just a very unique animal right now. I think, though, that it probably shares a lot of characteristics with anything that is sort of internet native right now, which is a much bigger pool, right? So anybody in who is e-commerce first, I think, shares a lot of those characteristics. Anybody who is a basically a content-based you know, business, whether it's, you know, ad based news, blogs, membership sites, all that sort of stuff. I think they all share those characteristics. Yeah. I mean, if you get into pure offline target markets, yes, but I don't know that developers are so, so unique versus everybody who runs a Shopify store. I think there's a lot of differences there. Like even if the, if you look at like ConvertKit, for example, does these, these state of the union surveys with creators, which is essentially bloggers and podcasters and other people. The difference, and I used to be kind of in that category, and it really actually was meeting folks like Taylor Otwell and Adam Wathen that blew my mind. So there's this kind of natural cognitive ceiling we have when we're in a bubble. And, you know, I'm in this online course creating category, and I'm going to the conferences and all the meetups, and I know you know, who are the most successful people in this space? What are what do they earn? And what does a typical launch look like? And what I've discovered over time is that, man, launches, the programming niche, the programming market, do way better, make way more money, have way better channels, have way more upside. I'm also an advisor for Podia, so I see some of the, you know, I can I have some insight into what folks are doing on that platform. And this is held true. There's in that specific, if we're going to just say, like, let's just take like online education. So one person does a a course for Shopify stores and one person, uh, you know, does a course for programmers. Uh, It's hard to generalize, but in most cases, the programming course is going to do better just in terms of sales, number of people buying, average sale price and overall revenue. It's just there is a noticeable difference between categories. I think that's true, but I don't know if you would see the same thing if you were talking about like products, right? So SaaS products. So if you were to analyze the success of entrepreneurs building on the, just to generalize, the Heroku add-on store selling primarily to developers, the Shopify app store selling primarily to e-commerce entrepreneurs, and the uh, WordPress plugin directory selling primarily to content folks. I mean, well, I think they would share differences a lot. between WordPress, like WordPress, there's noticeable differences in that market. You know, the customers are tend to be more difficult. The customers are more price conscious. The customers are, you know, it's harder to get them to upgrade from free to paid. I think there are, that's the whole, that's the whole reason I'm so interested in markets is that characteristics of markets matter. These things that we observe at the beginning when we're pointing ourselves in a specific direction and deciding which way to step forward, that 1% at the beginning of our journey actually matters a lot. And, you know, pointing yourself, it's still, there's no guarantees, 
And it's still not easy. Like people ask me all the time, like, well, okay, well, give me an example of a good market that's un- <laughs> untapped. Well, if it was easy, then I would just be playing the stop, stock market. But it's very similar to like skiing. You can teach me how to position my skis one direction or another. You can teach me how to stop. You can teach me to do all these things. But if I'm on a flat slope, none of that matters. And it feels like sometimes we're teaching people how to position their skis and, you know, how to go backwards and all these things, but they're on a flat slope, so they're not moving. Where the first thing we need to show them is like, here's a good slope. This is too mellow. This is way too steep. But this right here, this is a good slope. And now your positioning matters a lot because now as you're going down that slope, the way you turn your skis matters, the way that your, your technique matters, the gear you're wearing matters, your, the skills you bring to the table matters. And to me, finding a good market is very similar to just finding a good slope to ski. And um, there are noticeable differences, like that run over there, mm, it's a little bit more mellow. Maybe don't go after that one. That one over there, ooh, that's really steep. Like, I, I sort of feel like with your with your main thing though, you're you're basically telling folks like go straight to the double black diamond, right? Like it's <laughs> gonna it's gonna be fast, you're gonna get to the bottom and you're gonna either die or, you know, get there real fast. It's gonna be wonderful. You know, I mean I'm kinda saying like maybe Tyler, the number one rule about metaphor club is that you can't <laughs> cross metaphors. <laughs> I think Tyler brings up an interesting point. And it's funny that the both of you are on the two sides of this issue that you're on because I would typically associate the position of go for the main thing, go hard or go home, pick the biggest market with advice advice that I would hear from investors, mm-hmm. uh, especially high growth startup, Silicon Valley investors who don't necessarily care that much about the individual success of any of the companies they invest in, but they really want you know one or two or three of the companies they invest in to really hit a home run. And as a bootstrapper, I think more people are... are concerned about, hey, can I like get to enough money and revenue to quit my job, mm-hmm. you know, to to be able to sustain my lifestyle? And it often ends up looking like a trade-off between something that has a higher chance of success, but might not have as high of a ceiling in terms of how big of a business you can build versus something that might be swinging for the fences, going off during a massive market, but there's just so much risk there. There's so much competition. You might have to be so much more clever to figure out how you're going to make your mark. So Justin, my question for you is, do you see that as a trade-off that you have to make? Or do you think that picking one of these giant markets and building a main dish doesn't really come with any downsides? I get mischaracterized here. I've never said pick the biggest market, or I've never even said pick a massive market. I've just said the size of the market does matter. And I think there is a danger to lean too far to like, oh no, just pick a tiny little group where you can compete. And we don't even have to use the word tiny or massive. We can just say, well, at some point, the size matters. We have to quantify the demand. What is the economic potential for a product if I built it in this category? And so I'm not saying, you know, that you want the biggest possible ceiling that is just, you know, infinite, but I'm saying the ceiling matters. If your ultimate outcome that you'd like is to, you know, hit a certain threshold for income or something, then yeah, the size of that market matters and the ceiling matters, right? And there's no guarantees that you're going to start, you're going to be able to start in a smaller market or even uh, with niche positioning and that you'll automatically be able to kind of move yourself over to something else. So yeah, I've never said the, like, go after the biggest market, like go 
go and look through all my posts. And maybe I said it, but I can't think of that's never how it's been in my head. In my head, I've just been like, no, this does matter though. Like the the size of the market is one of the characteristics that we want to look at. And we want to look at some other things too, right? We want to look at Okay, so like number of potential customers, how much they spend, the frequency at which they buy, the growth rate, right? Uh, how many new customers are coming into the market? How much are they spending? What's the frequency of spending? And what percentage of the market do you think you can reach? I want to maybe try to pin you down a little bit on this and say, because sure. I, I agree maybe that, you know, rather than sort of debating like what you have said in the past, like, you know, what do you think? Because, you know, it seems that, you know, the post, the main thing basically says you should build a main thing, right? I mean, to say there's caveats and exceptions, but the, the, the gist of it is you should probably build an entree, right? And, and then at the same time, you're also doing that, right? I think, you know, most people would look at you going directly head to head. You know, I think when you launch Transistor, when you Google like best podcast host, there's like a blog post that comes up with like 42 options on there, you know, mm-hmm. so, so you're also clearly doing something that, I think most people would consider to be on, you know, not the extreme end. You're not going head to head with WordPress or Shopify, but you are going after what most people would consider to be a non-niche, you know, sort of product. And you write this post saying, hey, you should think about main things, appetizers and desserts, and you should build an entree. I never said you should Uh build an entree. I, I think I, you did, but but what do you think? What, what, no, I, regardless I of what you said that. now, that's, that's, that's okay. important. It's important because often the people who are nitpicking me on Twitter are assuming that I'm saying something, but that's not actually what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this is interesting, man. Like, you know, this idea of entree, appetizer, and dessert. Hmm. And we should consider this. And then here's a big section of the post, like 30, 40% that just talks about you know, how bigger markets can support ancillary products. And that's interesting too. And huh, what are the circumstances in which all of these kind of fit together? So like the responses I get from my readers of my newsletter seem to be more understanding of all of the nuance I'm writing in the posts. But the the comments I get on Twitter are, are often like saying, well, you must mean this. It's like, well, no, I'm Twitter is not the, I, the place for understanding, I, Justin. <laughs> I'm, I'm just exploring an idea. And the idea has this kind of section over here. And the idea has this section over here. And in many ways, like podcasting is interesting because it's not that big of a market. So people are always saying like, well, Justin, you always, always say in massive market. I'm like, no, my biggest competitor from what I can tell has 70,000 customers. That's a pretty small market comparatively. And and from the beginning, I mean, if you go back to John and I's uh, podcast, like early episodes of Build Your SaaS, we're talking about these things. Like, wow, the ceiling of the podcasting market is probably much lower than what we saw with WordPress hosting and what we see in video. It's just... And it's growing, but it grows like, you know, 5 10% a year. It's not going to be this massive market. But we saw, you know, we, we looked at it. Okay, well, what's number of potential customers and how much they spend and the growth rate and how much of the market we think we can reach? And then we kind of go after it. And I'm just saying podcasting was big enough that it felt like it was worth going after as opposed to, you know, some other things I've tried. I've had all sorts of businesses in my life and I've worked for 
different startups as well along the way. And, and I've seen, you know, I've got my newsletter list, I've got friends, I've got MicroConf, I've got Mega Maker Club. I've seen all of these people launching products. And often, you know, one of the problems is they chose a market that for a number of reasons probably wasn't the best market. And in some of those markets, whether you're building the main thing or a side dish really matters. And so you should consider that. In other markets, it might not matter as much. And there are other factors to consider. But this is like one of the filters I think people should be applying. And it's just an interesting exercise. Hmm, am I building a main thing or a side thing? If I am building a side thing, is the market I'm in big enough to support it? If I am building a side thing, what are the potential threats? Uh, If I am building a side thing, what is the ceiling for what I'm building? And is that going to be enough? And, you know, Snapshooter that you mentioned earlier, the the Digital Ocean thing, he's in Mega Maker Club. And, uh, you know, one of the things he is, he's built a great business. It's it's, It's a great business, but he has hit a ceiling and now he's wondering, okay, what do I do? Is there a way to grow this beyond what I've got here? And so these are all just things to explore in the, the complex and difficult world of starting a business. What, you know, what are you going to explore? I will just try to take a little bit more falsifiable position on this uh, to maybe try to engineer some debate here. Um, so, so Cortland, I think you, you framed it right a little while back, basically talking about how, you know, you would traditionally expect the hats to be, uh, I don't know, reversed, or, or at least for me to be wearing a different hat as, as an investor. Most investors, um, they have a diversified portfolio, so they want their individual companies to sort of go for broke. So yeah, sure, take on the biggest market you can with the most main thing on trade that you can. We have a, a totally different approach. Our basic key metric is not the magnitude of, we talked about this already, but you know, not the magnitude of the individual outcomes, but actually just how many of the the founders that we back actually succeed. So we're trying to make as many of them succeed as possible. So so I'm pretty aligned in the sense of when I try to give advice to entrepreneurs to say, this is going to maximize your chance of success with our fund strategy. And then you can look through our portfolio and you'll see that it pretty much matches up with what I'm saying, which is essentially, I think, you know, if you are a bootstrapper or bootstrapper-esque company. You don't have a huge array of unfair advantages. One of those unfair advantages could be a big pile of, of VC money. Another advantage could be you know, a, a lifetime of working in the industry and a giant audience in that industry. Um, but you know, there, there's a lot of those. But if you don't really feel like you have a huge number of unfair advantages and you're trying to maximize your chance of success as an indie hacker, I think you should almost exclusively think about side dishes in main markets. So, so any of those big verticals that, you know, probably any, any of the categories along the left-hand side of the indie hackers slash products or, or whatever that page is that says, you know, e-commerce, CRMs, sales automation, all that sort of, if you're going to go right at any of those categories, you should absolutely be building something that looks like a side dish um, because you're going to be able to much more easily achieve differentiation. You're going to be able to piggyback on the distribution that big players are already tackling in that space. You know, you can either jump into their their ad stores, their add-on stores, you can, you know, hop into their forums and find their customers and all that sort of stuff. And you should 
run like hell away from trying to compete directly. You know, I, I see people coming in and trying to build the the, the main product in those categories. I'm going to build a, a simple, easy to use e-commerce store, right? How many failed versions of that have you seen in Indie Hackers? It's just, it's, you know, it's, it's the, it's the build the to-do app way to learn to code, but it's not the way to, to actually build a business. So, so we're pretty solidly in the camp of if you're going to go after any of those verticals, you should be building something that looks like a side dish. And the big caveat being, if you're going to go after a very, very niche audience to, to basically agree with Justin's point earlier, if the, if the audience is very small, you probably do need to build a, a sort of main thing product that you know, is, is their primary use case. So if you, if you are going to build something specifically for, you know, dentists in Florida, you need to build a sort of comprehensive full stack SaaS platform is going to be the thing that they pay hundreds of dollars a month for at least not a little add on. Mm -hmm. But but I definitely think like go for side dishes basically. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that philosophy is fine. There's, there are definitely examples of where that can work. Certainly again, there's still a, a, kind of the question of how much momentum in a market is enough to to make a side dish work. And the problem with with trying to quantify like scientifically which approach is more is better is that we just don't actually have quantitative data on success and even like you met like what is your definition of success at earnest? Well, we don't have a defined definition of success, but I mean, one of the things that we measure is basically getting to default alive as quickly as possible, right? So, so we try to see, you know, most of the companies we invest in, they're not default alive. They're, you know, it's a side project. It's not paying them enough to cover their bills. And we try to say, you know, in under 12 months, the business should be default alive, you know, covering your businesses. Because I basically think that's a platform that you can build on. One of the things that I think is the thing that often kills businesses is they go after too big a market, they go after too too big of a product scope, and they just don't get to default alive. Whereas, you know, once you get to a default alive, and by default alive, I'm just meaning that you're making enough money that you can kind of keep doing what you're doing. You're covering your costs, and then you can think about do we expand into a adjacent market? Do we add on a second product? Do we build out a feature set that moves us closer to the main thing from the, you know, the amuse-bouche up to a, a hefty appetizer up towards the entree? But you need to achieve those little economic platforms as you're building. Uh, sure. it's so easier. If, if we were going to quantify it, like, is that $10,000 a month in revenue? Is there any sort of kind of baseline we can you use I mean, for th- there or...? One magic number is usually like 10K MRR per founder. That that usually feels like enough that people feel like, okay, hey, I could probably do this for the foreseeable future rather than having a, a lit fuse that's going to you know, blow up any moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, it hugely varies, right? It depends on whether or not you have a, you know, a mortgage and three kids and all that sort of stuff versus a solo hacker in Thailand. So mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, this is what makes all of this so difficult. So first of all, none of us here can really quantify... Uh, which approach is the best approach to get most businesses to $10,000 a month in monthly recurring revenue because we just, we don't have that kind of data, especially not that kind of data on bootstrap businesses. And so that's tricky already. We also don't, it, you can't split test life. So if there's, you know, Jane in, in Ohio and she's like, okay, well, which approach am I going to take? Am I going to go this route or this route? Uh, we can't split test that and see which you know, which approach would work better. And so a lot of this does kind of end up being what 
you know, in Tyler's case, what is he seeing on the earnest side? And in my case, what am I seeing on my side? Uh, not just with my own experience with Transistor, but with all these other people I know. And I just don't want to, I, I think that the biggest thing, and Tyler probably feels this on his side, is I don't want people to discount the big categories. Like my friend Paul Jarvis and Jack Ellis, they're going after Google Analytics. That's one of the biggest, most competitive categories. You know, like that's it. That's that's a crazy category to go after as a bootstrap company. But they have such huge unfair advantages. Uh, see, this is where I think we do have a genuine point of disagreement. I think mm-hmm. a a young indie hacker who is reasonably good at coding and that's it, right? You know, they're transitioning from or young in the sense of of their total time being an indie hacker, right? They could be older, but they're just kind of just getting into it. And they don't have a massive audience and a best-selling book and just a huge amount of built-up trust from folks who say, yeah, I'll give this a shot. Were they to come and launch a direct competitor for Google Analytics, they would fail. And I'm sure that if we go through the the annals of indie hackers, we will see a whole bunch of, you know, launched milestones, nothing else, in, in that exact category. I mean, sure. this is why I don't want to including But including people that on the surface look like they have unfair advantages, right? There's a lot of those folks that launch things that don't work, like that have the big audience, that have these things that people often point to. And obviously there's other, there are other characteristics that matter. This is why I'm saying the market, the market you choose is the most important decision you make. Because mm-hmm. so Paul and, and Jack launch this now when there's this whole other context happening. If they launched it five years ago, even they, with their, you know, Paul's big audience and things, would have probably failed. And Paul has, you know, he has a number of failed software project launches. And so do I, by the way. I have I have things that I tried to launch that just did not work for a, a number of reasons. So right now, there's this big backlash against Google. There's this whole concern about privacy, that the idea of privacy-focused analytics is increasing as a trend. The idea of simple analytics is increasing as a trend. And really, and this is another thing I I should point out, because I remember Rob Walling telling me this, because I said, you know, your audience must have helped you so much with Drip. And he's like, "Mm, a little bit. But, you know, on my side, I can see the... Everybody for, says that, and for, I don't believe that for I know, a minute. Everybody I, I said, says that. They don't want to think they have an unfair advantage, and they're just wrong. Everybody says that, but it is a humongous I said, advantage. I said the same thing. And I'm not discounting that it is, a bit of a, it is a bit of an advantage. But do know that people with big audiences launch failed products all the time. Sure. And sure. so certainly it helps, like who you know and who knows you, your financial margin, your uh, how you execute on the product, how you execute on marketing channels, your history and skills, positioning, timing, all of these things matter. But unless the market is right, that's kind of the slope that you build everything else on. And so right now, the slope for privacy-focused analytics and simple analytics is a bit steeper than it would have been five years ago. And so the timing does matter, right? Uh, if I don't, I don't think Transistor would have done as well if we launched five years ago, or if we launched 
five years in the future. Or if it was somebody else that wasn't you. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's something that is is under extract. Let me put rubber meets the road here. Okay, so mm-hmm. so somebody joins Mega Maker. They mm-hmm. are a software engineer. They know how to code. They've never really launched a product before. They listen to this podcast and they say, huh, analytics market sounds like a good market. Pretty big. Looks like Paul Jarvis is succeeding. I see some other stuff in there. I think I'm going to build an analytics company mm-hmm. as my first product. What do you say to them? Do you say, go for it, great market, get after it? Or do you say, eh? Oh, no, I, I would say, yeah, so that's a, that's, a, that's a really good point. Definitely, if it's your first day skiing, a black diamond, and I come along and I ski black diamonds every weekend, I'm going to kick your ass for sure. Your experience matters. The, everything you bring to bear as a founder does matter. Absolutely. And, you know, I started blogging in 2008 and made no money for, you know, a long time and then, but gradually built an audience. And so audience is one thing, you know, one advantage I have for sure. Uh, Ruben Gamez doesn't give a shit about audience. You know, <laughs> that's not, he's never built it. He doesn't care, but he had an unnatural advantage with search engine optimization. And he also had the right timing because when he was initially doing it, he was there at the right time. So all of those things matter. I think one of the things that we're hitting on here is that regardless of what your choice is, there's all these different variables. Um, Do you build an audience first or do you build an audience later? Do you build the main thing or do you build a side dish? And there's examples of successful companies who've done all of these things But I think if you make a choice, you have to go into it with your eyes wide open and make the resulting trade-offs that are consistent with the choice that you made. Mm. Um, And so I wonder, I want to get both of your takes on this. What trade-offs do you have to make if you pick, if you decide to build the main thing? What can't you do? What has to be true for you to succeed making that choice? Because obviously, Justin, you've succeeded doing that with Transistor so far. Mm -hmm. But a lot of other people, Tyler, you pointed out, have failed. Um, how do you make it work if you decide to build the main thing for a market? I think one challenge with this especially is so much of this has to do with where you are in your life. Yeah. Because I'm almost 40 and, you know, I, I have four kids. And when people come to me now and say, should I like build a bootstrap startup with kids when I've got a, a two-year-old and a six-month-old? I'm like, oh, it is so hard if that's the stage of life you're in. When a 20-year-old comes to me and says, I just graduated college. I've never had a job. Should I start a business? I go, well, you could, but it would be better for you to work in an industry and spend some time on the slopes, you know, and start to realize, oh, this is where the good runs are and this is where the bad runs are and this is the kind of equipment you need and this is, you know, it, it does help to have some experience. And so, you know, these touchstones that we give people in blog posts and tweets and other things, these are things for people to consider as they're moving along. But depending on where you are, those trade-offs are going to, the trade-offs really depend on who you are and where you are and also the context you're in. So I don't think those trade-offs are true all of the time. Sometimes a side dish is better and it seems great and everyone's like, oh, like, you know, uh, you know, bare metrics, that's, that's the best business you could start because they went on top of Stripe and it's incredible. But then you see, well, oh, wow, there's a ceiling to that business. And after 10 years, after some time has elapsed, there's reasons why you might not want to be in that business, right? So we have to be careful about, 
I mean, definitely be careful about like, don't follow me just because Transistor is doing well right now, because in six months, it might not be doing well. There's all sorts of things that can that can happen. I'm as much of a, a player in this game as anybody else. What I'm trying to do is share the things, you know, as I'm experiencing them, I try to share the way I think about them, how I'm positioning myself uh, on the slope and what kinds of slopes I'm looking for. So yeah, that's a difficult question to answer from from my side. I think your bare metrics example is a pretty good one, though, where you might be able to start a business that has a lot of momentum in the beginning, but also if you haven't looked at the ceiling for that market size, like one trade-off you're making is that it might not be able to get as big. Or if you're talking about audience, um, if you have a large audience, but then you enter a market where pretty much the only way to acquire customers is is with good SEO, maybe your audience isn't really going to help you that much because you have to do all this content creation and you can't just get customers from Twitter. Tyler, I wonder what your take is if you're building sort of you know, a side thing, as you say, most bootstrappers and indie hackers should start by building a side thing. What are they giving up by doing that? And what do they need to make sure is also true? Do they need to target a big market? Does it need to be a growing market? What should they take into account if they want to start by building a side thing? Yeah, I think it's so true what you said, Justin, about how it's so context dependent on on the personal context of the entrepreneur. So that's why I've been trying to sort of continuously preface this with like from the perspective of a you know young, as in you know how many years since indie hacking, indie hacker with no unfair advantages. Because as soon as you change any of those, it starts to become a totally different question, right? But I think to your question, and this is something we've talked about before, but you know to your point that you can't split test life. I mean, to some extent, you can get sort of some experimental data in the sense that, you know, you have a big megaphone here. And, you know, when we were starting Ernest and we said we're doing funding for bootstrappers, you know, what you were doing comes up a lot. So a lot of people were thinking, what do you think about podcast hosting? So I looked at a lot of podcast hosting businesses uh, and had a lot of podcast hosting businesses apply, reach out. Whole bunch of people who built relatively feature complete, very competitive, modern, slick UI, you know, not necessarily objectively better or worse, but like had a lot of the same features as, you know, what you guys are offering and what the major incumbents are offering, you know, didn't ever crack like 1K MRR. Like, I mean, literally, I could put, I mean, I don't, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, right? But I mean, I could send you a list of 12 companies that, that launched in a comparable timeline. And one of the things they didn't have was they were just like smart indie hackers, smart entrepreneurs that could build product, but they never were able to get distribution or enough differentiation to really get off the ground. So, so it really does matter who you are, where you are, and all of those factors, I think, come into play. But I, I do think you can you can sort of start to strip those away one by one and say, putting back your your like original hacker hat on, where would you sort of start to to maximize your chance of success? You know, I don't know. I, I think that's an important takeaway is that, you know, what I do see people without those unfair advantages coming in and getting success is when they basically find this this one niche where nobody else is building that product and they just solve a problem and they can just go one by one. They can just email these customers and say, hey, like, I built this product. You're using spreadsheets and sticky notes for this and you should be using my SaaS product instead. It costs 20 bucks a month uh, and enough people will be like, great, I'm in. You know, and I think that, you know, even though maybe that has an ultimate ceiling, like even if it has a ceiling, I think, you know, what you often see, even with some of these examples of people who end up building, you know, bootstrap businesses that are in the main thing, they often start somewhere more niche as a point of entry. And that's how you build 
those platforms to sort of say, okay, well, now I'm not a solo hacker. Now I have two people on support and two engineers and a part-time designer that I love working with. Maybe now I should go tackle this sort of adjacent big thing. So, I mean, the ideal, the magic, you know, path, right, is to, to find a, a side dish that is sort of, this metaphor is going to break down, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's defined, <laughs> to find a sort of, you know, add-on entry point to a market and gradually start to, to use that as an Archimedes lever to get further and further and further into that market. So, I mean, if I were to say something that I think is definitely true, it's to take the analysis that, that Justin has laid out here and then take my advice, which is to find one of those great markets and then find the right entry point for it, which has like potentially less competition or is more differentiated or has a better kind of uh, distribution aspect. And then build your team, build your MMRR, you know, build that ability to sort of, you know, build, build your audience, build, you know, your, your unfair advantages, essentially. And I think this is the thing that I've changed my mind on the most since becoming an entrepreneur is I used to think everything should be super meritocratic and you shouldn't care about whatever was the best product would win. And now I see business as basically this steady accumulation of unfair advantages and finding the right kind of entry point to apply your pressure depending on what unfair advantages you have at the time. I agree with that. I think there's, you're right. Like when you're starting out, you need some sort of toehold and that can take all sorts of shapes, but it's probably going to mean starting small. And that might mean you have to, yeah, you have to build a, a side dish in an already big market. I think that's good advice. How did you get a toehold with Transistor, Justin? Because you're in a relatively competitive market and yet you've been able to grow pretty quickly. I mean, there's so many things. It's layer on layer. It starts, you know, when I'm in high school and I love talk radio and you know thought about how cool it would be to own a talk radio station and then it continues on from there there's layers and layers of experiences and connections and skills that we built up and sometimes to untangle all of that is tricky uh john had built a podcast hosting platform before that really helped uh, our first customer was cards against humanity that helped that gave us a lot of cred, right? We were able to take that. And uh, well, I was able to take that. I'd built up all these sales and marketing skills and I was able to use that initial customer to as leverage to get us other customers. I'm 40, almost 40. <laughs> it's just like I, I had years and years of grinding and observing and, you know, working on different things and trying different things and then meeting people who were like showed me their numbers and like there's just so much there and so yeah there's a a culmination of things that have helped us get to where we're at and by the way i mean now there are like since we started there are a couple really strong competitors that have that have come up after us and figuring it out when you're in the in the stream and figuring out how to, okay, how how are we going to go from here is is also tricky. So what started us out? Yeah, there's just, I think, who I knew and who knew me was the big one. You know, all of these skills that we'd been working on since we were kids really helped as well. Uh, If John hadn't started programming in high school, maybe, maybe Transistor wouldn't exist. There's a lot of things there that helped. I think, I think there's a more complimentary, complimentary way to put this, and I'll see if you agree with this, which is, you know, you said like, I'm 40, but like, what you're really saying is you have a really huge 
trust bank, right? That you have been giving to a community of entrepreneurs, of podcast creators, of, you know, all of these folks that are in that the orbit of making a business like this work. And you had been building trust with them, you know, through through honest transactions and through just giving away valuable content for a long freaking time that you had a huge, huge trust bank. I mean, one of the things I think I've, I've heard you say this publicly, so we can edit it out if it's, if you don't want people saying, but I mean, I think you've, you've said that like, you know, affiliates really helped you get off the ground to get to like that break even part where you were really cruising. Mm-hmm. One of the things we've, we've learned from, you know, having a portfolio of founders and you probably see this in mega maker as well is that, you know, a lot of people think affiliates are just this thing where you put up a referral program and voila, it just works. Mm-hmm. But it's not. It's its own marketing campaign. You have to actually pitch affiliates to be affiliates and to be, you know, to prioritize you and to promote you and all that sort of stuff. You had this trust bank with them, right? Where I'm mm-hmm. sure a bunch of affiliates that had known you for a long time, you know, maybe you'd done favors, maybe they just knew you were a good guy. And they were like, great, Justin's doing Transistor. He's got an affiliate program. We're in. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that's just, there's no like, oh, you know, that's cheating or something. Right. It's just like you earned that. Right. You earned that over a long period of time for them to say, you know, we're going to do this for you and and maybe not the kind of like other random competitor from someone they never heard of. Um, and, and that's one of the ways you can get a toehold. That's like a per- perfectly fair play. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think hopefully that gives hope to people who are older and people who are younger. I mean, I think one of the reasons Nathan Berry succeeded is he started, he just started a practice and a pattern in his life earlier than I did. He was blogging consistently in his early 20s. He was publishing things in his early 20s. He was selling things. He he started practicing selling early in his 20s. And that enabled him to get started earlier than I did. Right. It, it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I started practicing those things. And it is the, the practice and the experience that matters. And if you're young and you've got a lot of time and a lot of energy, that's a great time to start practicing because you've got a lot of time and energy. If you're older, it's probably going to take longer. If I hadn't started in my 30s, then I would have never gotten to where I'm at today. And so I usually, when, like when I'm advising young people, I say, who you know and who knows you matters a lot. And you've got to start practicing. You've got to start putting things out into public. You've got to start publishing. You've got to practice selling. Uh, all of these things take practice. And the more repetitions you can put in, if you're moving in the right direction, make sure that you're pointed the right way, the more repetitions you can put in, uh, that really helps. And Uh, If you're older, if you're in your 30s, 40s, or 50s, or 60s, or 70s, whatever, you know, it took me a decade probably to get a reasonable toehold, but that's, you can still do that when you're older as well. Tyler, let's say I'm listening and I don't have very much experience. I'm sort of a fledgling indie hacker just considering this. And I'm trying to decide between building a main thing and a side dish, building in a niche or not building in a niche. How do I make that decision for myself? And I also wonder, do you think these things are mutually exclusive? If you build sort of a main dish, something that people are used to paying lots of money for, is it impossible to also build that inside of a niche? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, one of the things we didn't touch on too much here, we, we spent a lot of it on this idea of main thing side dish. Um, and 
I think that, I guess we were kind of going back and forth on this in Twitter, and I sort of feel like I parsed it a little bit better in my own head, which is that there's this sort of two-by-two matrix of like, is it a niche audience or the mainstream audience, and or is it a main thing, and is it a side dish? And I feel like right. there's two really good quadrants on that, which is either the main thing for a niche audience or a side dish for a huge audience, and then there's one really bad one, which is a side dish for a niche audience, which is like almost guaranteed to fail because there's just not enough customers. And then there's a questionable one, which I think is a function of how many unfair advantages you have, which is going after a main thing in a huge market, right? And so if you don't think that you have a huge number of unfair advantages, then you should pick one of those two quadrants. So, so, and you can see this actually, this is basically how we allocate capital essentially. So if you look through our investments, pretty much all of them fit into either. It is the main product for a relatively niche audience. And like we've talked about this to death on Twitter and elsewhere that, you know, niche is this incredibly complicated word and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, in broad strokes, it's not e-commerce owners. It is, um, you know, small businesses that do IT network installation, right? Like one of those is clearly niche and one of those is probably not in a very broad brush. So if you're going to go after something like that, you probably want to build like a pretty core product for them, you know? So another thing would be uh, if you're going to go after just CrossFit gyms, you probably want to build something that, you know, takes up a pretty good chunk of their business that handles a lot, you know, you can think of like uh, mind body, I think is a good example, right? They went after yoga studios, but it's like everything you need to run a yoga studio. You pay them a couple hundred dollars a month for a SaaS product does everything. So I think if you want to build like a main thing, let's say you just have a particular product insight into how project management should work or how payment transactions should work or something like that. I would go try to match a niche market where they really overvalue that insight relative to just like launching it into the main ether of like, here's how we're going to do e-commerce, right? Go and find like the, you know, I don't know, just the uh, particular, you want to launch, you know, a Shopify competitor, you have couple of insights, go and look for like, I don't know, it's just like the particular CBD industry because like they're not, they're quasi legal in certain places. I'm not advocating you should necessarily do this, but like try to match that up. To be like, <laughs> we're insanely good at, you know, managing this aspect of it. And it happens to match up with this niche audience. That's a great idea, even if it's a main thing, um, you know, or if you just kind of want to, you know, you just know the industry really well, you've been in podcasting, you've been uh, in e-commerce, you've you've written books about it, et cetera, and now you want to turn that into a product, I don't think you should go build a Shopify competitor. You should look at the Shopify app store, talk to your customers and clients there and figure out what's what's missing, you know, um, and where the where the white space is. Mm-hmm. I really like that that idea of the grid. Like for me, that was the perfect evolution of the thread that I was kind of on was I wasn't something I thought about, but I think that's a good way to think about it. Justin, one thing we haven't talked about is that in your post, you mentioned that there are kind of a limited number of things that customers are both already used to paying for and value enough to pay a lot for. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that and how that could help people sort of identify these main things that are worth building. Because I talked to so many indie hackers who are so afraid of the competition mm-hmm. that they end up building these really weird products that like nobody really values, no one wants to pay yeah. for, just because they feel this pull to build something completely unique. So what's your take on building things that people already pay for and pay a lot Yeah, that's for? like a, another vector of this idea. Really, the only example I can think of is my friend Jack, who runs Statomic. 
in the Statomic kind of, if they're in a product stack, they actually get very little of this value in that stack. Most of the value, most of what people pay for goes to DigitalOcean and Forge and the, you know, the, the hosting side of it. And he's in a market where people don't value the CMS as much, right? It, that's just the, the momentum in that market right now is WordPress is free. And so if all you're selling is a CMS, it's, it's difficult because what people are used to paying for is the hosting and they get the CMS for free. And you can see with Webflow and Ghost, one of the reasons that they ended up offering hosting as a part of it is because, yeah, this is a, like, I think Statomic is super valuable, but it's really difficult to change people's minds or change, you know, the way they do things. And so you have to kind of look at that, like in, in this kind of category or in this product stack or in this value chain, who typically gets most of the money and who gets left out? And sometimes that's more equitably split up, right? In certain value chains, all, all of the, the folks along the chain get more a reasonable portion of the income. And in some value chains, it's like people just don't get very much. And so in podcast hosting, for example... If you're just going to do like a commenting platform or a review platform, and those products exist, but they're always kind of like a side dish, like, okay, well, maybe I'll get that. But really what I need is the hosting. And so an interesting exercise to think about, okay, like, am I building something that there's not a lot of competition for, but it's because there's just no momentum. There's no demonstrated demand that folks are actually paying for this kind of thing right now. I think I totally agree with that. And it's tricky to sort of square that circle of look for where folks are already paying for stuff, but also there's not a lot of competition. Where I think I see that circle gets squared most often is to look kind of orthogonally at where they are spending money or valuable time, but not necessarily on an existing software product, right? So so if you see something where the CEO or the owner of a business is burning tons of time and you can say, hey, I built a software product, you can directly relate that to saving you a ton of time. That's good. Even better is, hey, I built this software product that's going to prevent you from having to spend money on an employee or to pay a contractor to do a one-off project for you. I feel like that's often where you know, you see these kinds of things happen where, hey, we used to have to have a staff of three to manage our, you know, fulfillment centers inventory. But now that we have this, you know, software product that actually, you know, intelligently sorts everything and automatically syncs between stuff, you know, we don't have to have three people doing data entry anymore. So we were spending money on that. We knew like, you could assign a dollar value to it, but it wasn't that we were already using a crappy software product. We were spending money on people or other things. That seems to be the best version of that. Although another good version is they're spend, already spending money on a very, very crappy outdated product. So we're running low on time here, but to close out, I'd love to get both of your opinions on how somebody who's just getting started can get over sort of this hump of paralysis when deciding what to work on. Because I think it's hard enough to come up with a good idea, but then you listen to a conversation like this, you, you hear there's so many different variables to keep in mind and to consider. Are you going to enter a big market or a fast-growing market, a side dish, a main dish? Is it going to be podcasting or developers? Is it going to be something where you build an audience first or not? And I think that can be even more paralyzing 
as to, wow, it's hard enough to come up with a good idea without trying to check all these boxes. So Justin, perhaps I'll ask you first, what's your advice for somebody trying to navigate all of this complexity? And Tyler, I'd love your opinion as well. I think the best advice is to get out of your bubble. So if you live in a small town and you just hang out with people in your small town and the only tech people in your town that make money are the people who do build WordPress sites, you need to get out of that bubble. You need to talk to other people. You need to meet other people. You need to have your, your, your understanding of what's possible kind of blown up. Because you'll see this in small towns. People are like, okay, well, the only way I can make money is to build WordPress sites. You've got to open your mind. You've got to get out of that context. And one way I did this early on is I would find a, a cheap flight or I would drive to another city a couple hours away and I would just go to a local meetup. So you're automatically kind of exotic because you're coming in from the outside and it's all local people. And it gives you this opportunity to figure out what's going on in their world. What kinds of things are they doing? Uh, what kind of money are they making? What kinds of industries are outside of your kind of understanding? And you can also do this in your town as well, uh, but it's just harder. So if you have a chance to get out of your town, you know, especially if you live in a smaller place, you would want to visit New York. You would want to visit Chicago. You'd want to visit San Francisco at some point. And just meet with some people, look up meetup.com and just go to a meetup and start to kind of expand your horizons. I think that's super good advice. You know, I guess one thing I would advise folks to do is to just keep the, try to keep the stakes really low at the beginning. If you're still at the idea stage, you're still at the, you know, is this a good market stage kind of thing. Um, try to, don't kind of quit your job and immediately start trying to figure out, you know, okay, I have to figure out something that's going to work, right? I feel like on the one hand, I have this kind of slightly pessimistic view for for entrepreneurs, which is that like at least, you know, indie hacker software entrepreneurs, which is that a lot of the obvious low-hanging fruit is taken, right? In terms of a lot of the big obvious use cases are now chock full of, you know, amazing competitors and it's 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 not the same as you know when you were launching businesses 10 15 years ago and you could be like oh well, this email marketing i don't know there's like two crappy people doing that let's throw something up there and if we're any good at it you know we'll succeed the flip side of that is this, this idea that i call like the peace dividend of the sas wars right which is that all of this battling also produced Ruby on Rails and Laravel Spark and and you know amazingly low hanging fruit for you know, those people used they had to build their own help desks from scratch you know now you just you plug in Intercom and uh, Help Scout or whatever and you're you're good to go so you know it's an amazing time to to be able to run fairly low risk experiments to be able to launch like a real product you know and see if it works I mean I would even even though you know I've sort of taken this position that you know you shouldn't go head headlong after these main things if you keep the the risks. To yourself low enough, I don't know, give it a shot. You know, but go build a, a, a CMS or a WordPress hosting business or a podcast hosting business. Sorry, Justin, but you know, <laughs> like, like, just go build it and see what happens. I mean, you know, I think it's unlikely to succeed, but if you keep the risks low enough, you know, I think you should go for it and, and just put in those, those reps to actually figure it out. And then I guess one tactical thing along with Justin's go to meetups, I would say is, you know, often becoming a, a sort of freelance consultant in random industries can be a great way to just figure out if there's a business. It's how my last SaaS business started because I was just freelance Rails developer for e-commerce sites. And a couple of my clients were like, I have this pain point. 
will you build it for me for an enormous sum of, you know, freelance hours? And I was like, oh, I think I can make this a SaaS business. And so just kind of, you know, if you're working a full-time engineering job, you know, maybe moonlight a little bit in some some random industries and see what people, um, you know, are struggling with and see if you can build something for them. Love that advice. I think it's really difficult to pick up on a pattern and see some of the commonalities between how successful businesses work and what ideas are out there. If you're really not broadening your perspective, getting out of your hometown, perhaps working different jobs in different industries than you're used to. So get out of the building and keep your expectations and the risk low early on so you can experiment. Mm -hmm. Tyler and Justin, thank you both for coming on the podcast. Hopefully this was a great discussion and people learned something from the things you both agreed and disagreed on. Can you tell the audience where they can go to find out more about Transistor, Justin, and also about Earnest Capital, Tyler. Uh, yeah, just Transistor.fm. Say hello in the, the live chat. Yeah, we're at EarnestCapital.com and you can find me on Twitter at Tyler Tringus. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks. 